Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at how to start an innovation revolution within your company. Why the era we're living in calls for radical new ways of running a business. Why you should routinely kill the processes or habits that make the least sense. And why haters can actually be one of your company's most valuable resources. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Lisa Bedell, award-winning author and CEO of FutureThink, an innovation training firm that helps businesses embrace change and become world-class innovators. Lisa has helped thousands of senior leaders ignite innovation at organizations like the New York Stock Exchange, Pfizer, Google, Lockheed Martin, and many others. She's an inspiring speaker who brings her message to nearly 100,000 people in more than 30 countries each year. And she was recently awarded the Top 5 Speaker Award by Speaking.com. She is also the author of the best-selling book, Kill the Company. In the status quo, start an innovation revolution, which won the 2014 Axiom Best Business Book Award and was voted Best Business Book by USA Book News and Booz & Co., A respected thought leader on innovation, Lisa has appeared on NPR and Fox News and in publications such as Fast Company, The New York Times, and Wired. She's a monthly columnist for Strategy Plus Business and a frequent contributor to Forbes and the Harvard Business Review. She serves as a member of the Global Agenda Council for the World Economic Forum an advisor on the board of the Association of Professional Futurists, and Novartis Diversity and Inclusion Board in Basel, Switzerland. She's also taught courses on innovation at American University and Fordham Universities. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. I'm glad to be here. So let's start off today talking about the crux of your book, which is that the way companies and corporations have traditionally been run is kind of an an inexorable death march in today's ever-evolving business world. Why do you think it's necessary for many companies today to start an innovation revolution within their own four walls? Well, it's a good question. And my, um, you know, my feeling on the whole topic is, is I feel like so many companies and the employees within them have become complacent. And not necessarily by choice, but just uh, by the nature of how business is today, everyone is very busy with things that aren't necessarily value-add tasks. So if you, you know, if you ask people what they spend most of their day doing, most people will say the first two things out of their mouths are meetings and emails. Yet all the things that we hear in terms of um, CEO speak, we hear in terms of annual reports, is that innovation is top of mind. So what we're doing all day versus what we say we're going to be achieving are two different things. And what I really think has to happen is we have to really start a revolution in terms of um, how we work and act every day. And we really have to start questioning our assumptions about our business. So my feeling around change right now within companies is we're approaching it all wrong. And we have to start really questioning the assumptions we have in our business and perhaps simplifying how we go about it. Okay, great. And one of the things that you mentioned in the book is being a favorite exercise of your clients And the thing that it sounds like ultimately drove you to write the book is to flip the typical corporate script by asking, how can the competition beat us Mm. rather than how can we beat the competition? Why is that such a powerful question to evaluate the answers to? 
Well, I mean, first of all, I think we have to start asking provocative questions like this to really shake people out of their complacency. They're kind of lulled into, into the doing the same thing every day because it's it's easy and they're tired. And unfortunately, what that does is that it uh, makes us not want to ask hard questions anymore because that might mean more work. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's really important now for us to think about really look at our own businesses and question the assumptions we have about it. And so the main crux of my book, which is called Kill the Company, came from a kill the company exercise. And, you know, the idea came from a very painful experience, which was I, I was talking about a lot of, you know, changing the business for this one multinational conglomerate. And they kept asking the same questions and coming up with the same ideas that they had tried over and over again. And um, I basically told them to kind of throw out all the assumptions they've had in the past and to do a reverse role play. You know, when you ask people to reverse how they think, one, it's very hard, um, but two, once they get it, it's very freeing. And Kill the Company actually turns uh, kind of a strategic exercise on its head and says, you know what, I want you to be your number one competitor, and I want you to spend a good half hour to an hour putting yourself out of business. And it's kind of an an out-of-company exercise that allows people to kind of step outside to attack what's wrong, not from a political perspective, but from a real weakness and competitive perspective, and then really be targeted about what isn't working and maybe where there's opportunities to turn some of these things back on their own competition. So, you know, doing this provocative outside-in approach versus inside-out approach can really make people question things and start to shake things up in a more productive way. And uh, were there any, I guess, specifics you could share around what that, that company that you mentioned was able to do as a result of thinking of thing, thinking about things differently? Sure. So one of the things they realized is, you know, a lot of the things that they actually did internally could be outsourced. I and mean, it can be simple things from corporate training to procurement to um, legal contract review. So there were certain things that they were holding on on the inside that weren't necessarily value-add that they actually started to turn outside. Um, and, and their competitors were already doing that. So it was really neat. Um, the other thing that they realized is that a lot of the ways that they functioned were very siloed, and that allowed their competition to attack lots of different areas in ways that, because they weren't talking to each other internally that they didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And they started to combine different areas within their company, like um, their marketing and social media aspects, um, their technology with their strategy group. So they could actually have combined efforts and be a stronger front to their competition. So it was very productive and it got people talking in new ways. Okay, got it. So you talk in the book about the three different types of organizational behavior, positive, negative, and complacent. Mm. Uh, Obviously, positive is going to be the best type of culture to build, but you argue in the book that a complacent culture is actually more destructive than a negative culture. Why is that? Because it's very easy just to say that everything's just fine. You know, if, if there's a negative culture, people know something's wrong, that something has to change. You might not want to work there, but you know that something has to give. And at least even in a negative culture, they take risks. But in a, in a complacent culture, things are just status quo. You know, it's kind of like doing the minimum. And nothing really changes until it absolutely has to. So doing, uh, doing things the same old way, doing things only incrementally, that's really the tolerance there. And unfortunately, those are the people that are most susceptible to um, going out of business due to startups or other things that they don't expect because they're just not watching. They're taking the eye off the ball. So to me, complacent cultures are the worst because they think everything's okay and it's not. Okay, got it. And you, you, you write in a number of outlets. Uh, you recently wrote a piece for Forbes not long ago. It's gotten close to 10,000 hits, and it was called 10 Disruptive Questions for Instant Innovation. 
And I thought one of them was very interesting. It was how can our services be turned into physical products and how can our products be turned into a service? So can Mm -hmm. you give an example or two of companies that have come up with product or service innovations by answering that question successfully? Sure. I mean, there's a bunch of them now. We know a lot of outdoor um, companies that actually, uh, for example, outdoor gear companies that have said, you know what, rather than just offering gear, we're going to offer services on how you can better use that gear, whether that's um, renting the equipment and getting money towards buying it or offering apps that allow people to better know when to use the equipment best. They kind of uh, turn a product business into a service business. Another example of that is something like, uh, let's take a retail experience, like Bed Bath & Beyond. You know, here's a basic retailer that doesn't have a lot of competitive advantage that now started packaging things up uh, for the time-strapped parent and now offers complete sets of college dorm room packages that you can literally buy and they'll help install into the room. So, you know, by taking disparate things, packaging them up and turning them into a service, that offers higher value and higher margin um, in return. We've, we've also seen it, interestingly, with people taking internal functions and turning them into things that they would give to their competitors, meaning, um, so Mars, candy and confections. They have some of the best internal logistics software in their entire industry, and they decided to turn it into um, a separate company, and they called it Freight Traders, and they now sell that logistics software to their competition. And so the beauty of that is their competition now gives them money, and they get data on how the competition is using logistics. Okay, great. And you hear you hear a lot of talk about Uber, obviously, as being a hugely successful company. I believe that they have... I believe there, there's talk of you know of, of Uber doing something with their uh, you know, whether it's real time uh, the, the surge pricing that they have or, or something, but they're going to be much more than just a on demand car service at the end of the day. Sure, I mean it's the same thing when you have um, Amazon who went from selling just books to becoming you know their web services is the biggest part of their business. So right. you know it's not just, right it's not just about the products they sell but the things behind it. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so so one of the reasons you gave for writing the book is to help companies root out complexity and complacency. So obviously getting rid of complacency is a, is a, is a good thing, but doesn't innovating successfully require some degree of complexity in its own right? No, I don't believe it does. <laughs> okay. I, I, I don't. I, I think that people feel like they need to have that as some kind of excuse. I mean, my point is, is that, of course, you need policies and procedures and processes in place all companies do because you don't want to descend into chaos. But I want people to really, really take a hard look at how complex does it really need to be. So you need standards, you need um, steps in place, but how many of those could actually be eliminated and could you still get to the same result? You know, the best product is typically the simplest one. So people can start really operating with lowest common denominator when they approach innovation. It's always easy to add on, right? It's harder to subtract. So start with the base first. So we're talking about innovation revolutions and starting innovation revolutions within your company. I think oftentimes when people think of of revolutions, they think of movements that have a charismatic leader who can really galvanize support for a cause or an ideal. So is it necessary for companies out there to have one quote-unquote revolutionary that starts the innovation revolution, or is that just kind of a convenient construct for people to tell a story about revolutions? Um, Well, well, yes and yes. I mean, I think it's actually great to have a revolutionary, right? I mean, there's some there's something very powerful about um, having someone who is, you know, rather than a revolutionary, because everyone thinks of, you know, Steve Jobs, you can also have a Tim Cook. And, 
the reason I say that is some cultures really revel around the anti-hero or the hero or the, the, the guy who was kind of maverick in his approach. And that can be really great when you're transforming something. But it doesn't have to be the only thing. So, I mean, do you have to have it to become uh, an innovative company? No. But what you do need is a leader that stands behind innovation. Some of the best leaders today we know in Fortune 500 companies are introverts. And they may be scientists. They may work in their own special way. Um, they're not necessarily these extroverted revolutionaries. But the point is, is that the company has a single leader that stands behind innovation and supports it. So everyone else can be a revolutionary in their own right on a day-to-day basis. Okay, got it. So in, in one of the videos on the website for your book and in articles you've written for sites like Leading Authorities, you talk about choosing processes or habits that drive employees crazy and then killing them. Why is this such a powerful tool, and how do you recommend analyzing those ideas to decide what to kill? Well, it's very cathartic. I mean, one of the things we talk about with change is um, sometimes the best thing when you um, begin to innovate is to stop doing things versus starting it. And because that was what happens is you get to clear away the space for growth because people don't necessarily want to do more, more, more. They just want to do better, better, better. So we have to get rid of the things that aren't working first and take a moment, in fact, a, you know, a planned, structured moment to um, really question the things that are in place and may have outlived their time. It doesn't mean they were bad. It doesn't mean it was stupid that they were put in place. It just might be time for something new. So the most popular exercise we have is called Kill a Stupid Rule. And what it does is it challenges people to really get rid of the policies or procedures or annoying everyday things that are standing in their way of doing a better job. And if they can't kill those things for some, it could be a regulatory reason or it could be a political reason, is there a way that they could change it? So what this really does is allows people to change the way that they operate every day and get rid of things that aren't working. People, people really think it's, it's cathartic for them. We, I can't tell you the number of clients we have from um, Sprint to Merck to Novartis to S&P to all kinds of companies that love this tool. It's their favorite and it's their go-to. And and can you describe the kind of axis that you chart ideas onto? Or not ideas, sure. but that you that you chart, I guess, the, the things that you kill onto? Sure. So, how, you know, how does it really work? You, you come up with all these ideas, really, when you give people the exercise. You tell them, start with 15 or 30 minutes and say, you know, I want you to brainstorm all the things within your business unit or within your company, depending on how big it is and how much you want to allow people to really stretch. What would you get rid of and why? And they come up with hundreds of things. And what's interesting is not all those things are rules. You know, they're procedures, they're policies, they're annoyances. So you can't kill all of them. You have to have a way to structure them and think about them. And so what we do is we suggest giving, um, creating a matrix, a two-by-two, if you will, where on one, on the left-hand side or the the y-axis, it's how, how easy is it to implement the change that you're suggesting or the rule you want to kill. And on the bottom, the x-axis, how um, low or high of an impact would it have on the business if you got rid of it? So ideally, on the top right quadrant, it, if a rule is easy to kill, it's easy to implement the kill, and it has a high impact, that's great. That rule would go in that upper right quadrant. And we actually have people write on a post-it each of their rules and stick them up in these quadrants. So which ones are easy to kill, which ones are hard to kill, which ones that have a low impact, high impact. And what you find is most people think that their rules are easy to get rid of, (laughs) whether they'd have a low impact or high impact. And what that does is it causes the discussion around, well, which ones of these that we put up on the board are quick wins? What could we get rid of right now? 
what things do we have to really evaluate right now to actually make these changes happen? Or even more so, if some of these changes are so easy to do, hey, people in the room, why haven't you done them? What is holding you mentally back from not making these changes on your own? So it's, it's a great exercise to help prioritize things, quickly get rid of things, but also really question and challenge people's mindset to say, why aren't you doing some of this stuff on your own? I'm empowering you to do it. And, and how often do you recommend that a company do this? It's uh, you know, once a year, once a quarter, once a month? At minimum, I would do it once a year. I mean, we think that the exercises like killing your company or killing stupid rules are really powerful just before your strategic planning. Because what that does is it allows you to really evaluate what's not working. And then you can realistically decide um, how much space you have for things that are. Um, and how much more you can really take on. So at minimum once a year, I know lots of people that do them quarterly. And um, they even do not just kill a stupid rule as an exercise, they do kill a stupid meeting. I mean, they just take audits of all the meetings they do all year and say, what things have we put in place in the last year that really we shouldn't do anymore going forward? So you can, you can take a twist on that exercise to create more efficiencies and more focused ways. Yeah, and it sounds like it's almost an exercise in, in getting more and more focused on the things that really matter to your business as opposed to just doing things for the sake of doing them. That's right. So there's, you know, people almost get afraid of simplicity because if it was that simple, why wouldn't we be doing it that way? And the reason why is because you haven't had time to think about it. Okay, great. So let me ask you about a piece you wrote for CNN a while back on the conceptual age and the work skills that anyone needs to survive it. So what, I guess, let's start off with what is the conceptual age? Well, conceptual age is really about um, more about thinking, right? So this is how do you actually get more creative and put more thinking into your work versus, you know, the process in industrial age. So, you know, going beyond industrial to services to now conceptual, this is about coming up with ideas. And for people to really come up with ideas, they need different skills versus, you know, if you're in the industrial age or process age, you really need things that are more um, con concrete, hard skills, subject matter expertise. So what we get into with the conceptual age is there's new work skills that you need, and they're probably going to be soft skills, and we know they're soft skills, and that's often hard for leaders to embrace because they're harder to measure, and they're harder to interview and find. <laughs> right. And so a lot of these, these conceptual skills would be things like strategic imagination, um, provocative inquiry, agility, uh, creative problem solving. So these are the kinds of things that you want people, well, first of all, you'd love if they were taught them in school because they're kind of life lessons and how you think mm -hmm. rather than what you think. And hiring for these things, you have to be more creative in terms of the questions you ask to really get at not just the experience people have, but how they approach their work. So what we talk about the conceptual age is you're hiring for new skills and how you go about hiring for them, you have to ask new questions so you can get the right team on board. Okay. And, and what, what might be some of those questions? What do you look for at Future Think when you're hiring a new employee? Sure. So first of all, let me tell you about the types of questions. So sure. a type of question might be, rather than a direct question, you might ask them a, um, uh, a, a question in terms of tell me an experience, or you might ask them a kind of an exercise. Mm -hmm. You know, if I gave you these, this pen right now, how could you sell it to me and tell me what, it's not a pen anymore, what is it and why? You know, how could you sell me something of value? Show me how you do creative thinking on the spot. Mm -hmm. So you actually, you, you, rather than having them say, I'm a real creative thinker, you say, well, show me how you are. So you can have people, that's agility, right? That's creative thinking, and that asks a question in a different way. So, for example, 
if you want to ask people about corporate culture, I would say, um, you know, if you were writing a tell-all book about your company on corporate culture, what would the chapters be? So that's a little different way of saying describe your corporate culture. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a new way to provoke thinking, but also get at how they do it in a creative way. Okay, got it. So another, excuse me, another online outlet that you've written for is Innovation Management. Uh, And in a recent post on taking an outside-in approach to innovation, you talk about the value of including haters of your product in brainstorms. So what's the value in including someone who's going to tear a product down in brainstorms about the future of that product? So I think we spend a lot of time, you know, it's kind of the echo chamber, talking to Mm -hmm. ourselves. So by just asking people that know your brand or love your brand or are frequent users of your brand, um, that's helpful, um, but those are more loyalists. It would be really great to know people who know who once used your brand but no longer want to. And why? Because if you what you're really trying to do is solve a problem. So if you're going to innovate and solve a problem, talk to the people that have a problem with your brand. And I think that is really a cool way to go about um, doing focus groups because it's the unusual suspects that give you the most unusual ideas. Okay, great. And and we talked a little bit about uh, kill the idea earlier. Are there other uh, tools that you all use with your corporate clients that tend to be that tend to be favorites that you could talk about? Sure. So uh, there's a bunch. I mean, I, kill the company and kill a stupid rule are always favorites of people because they actually get rid of things or break down barriers. An- another great one for people that really helps them disrupt is called assumption reversal. And what this does is it it ask people to take a look at a problem that they have and break it down into parts or, or assumptions that they have um, or truths about this problem. So if one of their problems is their weekly status meetings are horrible, what are 20 assumptions they have about those weekly status meetings? What are truths about how those weekly status meetings are run and why they're horrible? And they might say things like um, they're weekly, they're in a conference room, 20 people attend, there's an agenda, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you tell people to take those 20 assumptions that they had to write down and reverse them, meaning come up with alternative answers to those assumptions so you could do your weekly status meeting in a new way. And this is really freeing for people. So rather than them being weekly, maybe they're monthly, maybe they're um, daily, maybe they're never. Um, Rather than being in a conference room, they're virtual, they're stand-up meetings, they're at a client's. So you kind of get the idea that all of a sudden you come up with all these provocative alternatives that make people question their assumptions and unearth really disruptive things. So that's, that's another one people really dig. Another one I think is really great is called killer queries. And these are questions that actually shake up people's thinking and make them slightly uncomfortable. And, you know, one of the phrases that we have, if you want better answers or better ideas, ask better questions. So rather than getting into a brainstorm and asking people for ideas, maybe you just have to ask them better questions that would get at better ideas. So, Uh, For example, what would be something we could do to our product that would make everybody hate it? What would be a new way that we could break our product into parts that would allow us to create even more value than we had before? So, you you know, you get different ways of coming up with ideas just by slicing and dicing the approach. Okay, so let me ask you, Lisa, about Future Think a little bit. If you were writing a book and you were describing the culture of Future Think in the book, what would the chapters be? Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, it, w- it would be um, futuristic. It would be um, strategic fun. We have a lot of strategic fun. It would be um, creatively experiential. It would be connected. 
and it would be casual. I mean, I really think that people dig working here because it's it's casual, it's fun, and you know everything we do, we experience it first before we test it out on a client. People have fun. And how how big of an organization is it? Seventeen people. And we're located all around the world. We have trainers in Singapore, Frankfurt, London, across the United States. We're headquartered in New York City. Okay, great. And for listeners of the podcast who've been with us since way back when, Russ Schoen is uh, is uh, part of Future Think. He was on, I believe, it was episode six of the podcast. So that would have been back in. March or April, uh, but mm-hmm. talking about uh, talking about innovation and strengthening your creative muscle. He's a great, great guest. Um, so let's see, Lisa, you're a, a well-known speaker. Are there any are there any events on the docket where uh, where listeners might be able to see you in the coming weeks, months, years? Really good question. I'm going to be in, believe it or not, Las Vegas this weekend for a very large um, credit union conference. I'm going to be at one of the um, University Professors Conferences coming up on the 29th in San Antonio. And um, I just wrapped up actually a whole bunch of events for Google, both here and in Mountain View for their Think Performance events, which are really fun. Okay, great. And and what so we had a previous guest on uh, who had worked with Google a little bit, and I had to preface it with, you know, without sounding like a jerk, but without sounding like a jerk, what, what what do you? How can you teach a company like Google about innovation, or, or what are they looking to to learn? I guess when you're when you're going and and consulting with Google. Well, the great thing about them is that they are open to change, mm-hmm. and so what's wonderful about that they're open to change is, and they're really open to um, offbeat things, and they can be, by the way, because they have money and they're willing to take risks, and they have leaders that are revolutionary, right? Those are right. really cool things. So um, one of the things that we go in and they really like us to talk about is constantly questioning your assumptions. So even a company like Google, they have policies and procedures and ways they do things. And the way that they are going to stay ahead is if they constantly question their assumptions. And they really like the simplicity of the tools that we can bring to the table for them and, frankly, for their clients. Okay, nice. So we're, we're running a little low on time, Lisa. Um, any final parting words of wisdom for listeners out there that may be plotting their own innovation revolutions within their company? <clears throat> simplicity can be a very powerful competitive advantage. So uh, embracing simplicity, I think, is the best thing that you can do as a leader in terms of how you uh, create your innovation program and the communication around it. And the second thing I would say to listeners is that change is a choice. And you don't have to do it. But you have to really understand, if you want to do it, how much change are you willing to take and how forward are you willing to look? Because I think it can be a very powerful thing if you are willing to do it. Okay, great. Well, great note to close on. Uh, thanks so much for the, uh, for the wisdom, Lisa. Really appreciate it. And uh, it was great having you on. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about Lisa Bedell and FutureThink, you can visit the company's website at futurethink.com. The website for Lisa's book, Kill the Company, is killthecompany.com. There you can order the book and find resources including an innovation assessment and a number of killer quick win videos that describe innovation exercises, including some of the ones she described in this podcast, like Kill a Stupid Rule and Assumption Reversal. Thanks once again to Lisa Bedell for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're very excited to have Dr. Kevin McFarthing on the podcast to talk about how to make innovation simple, the key structural elements that all innovation efforts should include, the importance of nurturing the front end of innovation, 
and where innovative ideas should come from, and why you should look to create a balanced innovation portfolio. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.